to not just be slowing down, but to be moving at the child's pace. If they're trying to hurry along to keep up with us, that's very often when they become irritable. Hi, I'm so excited to introduce you to one of my mentors, a child development specialist and expert in the care of infants and toddlers, Deborah Carlisle Solomon. Deborah has served for eight years as the executive director of RIE, which stands for Resources for Infant Educators, and it's a school of parenting that is near and dear to my heart. And she's the author of Baby Knows Best, Raising a Confident and Resourceful Child the RIE Way. Deborah has a wealth of knowledge from working with families and will break down how to put some of Rye's theoretical principles into reality with very simple steps that we could start taking today. We're going to talk about slowing down and how that doesn't necessarily mean doing less, but about parenting in a deliberate, present, and mindful manner. And she gives great tips on how to integrate these steps into many of the routines that we're already doing today as parents. So, Sit back and enjoy this conversation about creating strong parent-child relationships centered on trust and respect with Deborah Carlisle Solomon. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. I've built a career dedicated to helping families find deep connections, build healthy relationships, repair attachment wounds, and raise kids who are healthy, secure, resilient, and kind. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights to help you understand the building blocks of children's social, emotional, and cognitive development, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is securely attached. So I'm here with Deborah Carlisle Solomon, who is a brilliant, brilliant person in the field of respectful parenting. And she's actually one of my own mentors. She's taught me a tremendous amount about parenting with respect and attunement. Um, But I would love to get a chance for you to share with everyone sort of a little bit about who you are, what you do and how you fell into this work. Ah, well, I fell into the world of Rye when my son was a baby many years ago. He's now an adult. And someone happened to, uh, I have to see a book by Magda Gerber, Rye's founding director called Your Self-Confident Baby. And I thought that was so odd to attribute self-confidence to a baby. This just sounded very odd. So I went and searched for the book and the book led me to classes and it fundamentally changed my perspective of babies and made parenting easier. And I realized I'd been working so hard, you know, to keep my son happy all the time Um, and really working, you know, overtime in ways that I really didn't have to. So, um, you know, I, we, my husband and I took him to classes for a couple of years. I learned a lot, uh, and then I wanted to learn more, so I kept on studying. And, uh, and then I was executive director of Rye for eight years, and I wrote a book about it. And I just love it. It just fundamentally changed my perspective and my life as a parent. So I just love sharing what I'm passionate about with other people. It's fun. So mm-hmm. it's fun to be here with you. Yeah. 
A little funny story and funny. I I met Deborah because I took the Rye Foundations training course, which is like an eight day intensive course. It was incredible. And I took it right when my daughter was about two months. I was on maternity leave, which was how I was able to get eight days to do this. And I was actually, I was going through postpartum depression at the time. I don't think I totally realized it, but I was. And in doing a lot of, I'd, we'd go through the stuff in class and then I'd go home and I'd kind of practice that with my daughter of just sitting and observing, which we'll talk a little bit about today. But I realized it really helped my postpartum depression because I was feeling really disconnected from her. And in doing these exercises of just slowing down and observing and paying attention to all the things that she was doing, oh, it really helped me develop a stronger relationship with her. And she's my second kid. And I already was practicing right with my first, but I don't think I understood it to the depth that I got after your class. And so that really changed my relationship with her. And I think because of that really helped me move through my postpartum depression. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It gave you the tools to sort of connect to her and maybe connect to yourself or reconnect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I think about Rye and the value it has in the parenting process, it's not just because, which it does, make parenting a lot easier because it kind of helps, just gives us some tools to like really have a more cooperative relationship with our kids. But I think it actually really helps the parent a tremendous amount because when you are tuned to your child in an effective way, you calm down, like you have a more enriching experience as a parent. And so it's not just for our kids that we do this. So it's for us too, yeah. which is kind of what we're going to talk about today, which I love. Yeah. Well, if it has to be yeah. good for both parties, you know, if it's, if it's helping the parent maintain their equilibrium, then, then mm-hmm. that's going to be helping the child as well, right? It's good for both, yeah. for everybody. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, So we were talking, when we were thinking about what we wanted to talk about today, we were talking about, you know, we, you know, Rye and just in general, the work you do, we help parents and the work I do, we help parents, but we we have all this theory, right? We talk about attachment theory. We talk about, you know, the the philosophical teachings of Magda Gerber, but how do you put these theories into practice? What's tangible about this? Yeah, you know, I think what I, I lo- I'm a very practical person. So theories are great, but if you can't translate the theory into practice, then I, you know, they're not terribly useful. So I think Magda was really quite brilliant at, um, uh, you know, sort of giving people real practical, concrete tools that they can use in their interactions, so they can pay attention to their behavior. Um, uh, to help them stay connected, because it's not so easy to stay connected, especially with the young baby who you can't have a conversation with, right? So how do you do that? How mm-hmm. do you sort yeah. of help your mind not wander when you're changing a diaper? You know, I could be somewhere far, far away, but then she gave us the idea of, mm-hmm. well, have a little chat, narrate, talk to the baby about what you're doing together, or observation. Observe the baby and what the baby is noticing when the diapers being changed, you know, and you can have a little exchange. So she was 
she kind of concretized things, you know, they're specific things that we can practice. And I think you and I, Sarah, were talking about the idea that it's too much to practice all at once, right? And so mm -hmm. there are a few things that I typically suggest that people begin to practice first that can, even if they don't yeah. do anything else, they can make a big difference. Yeah. So Wonderful. what, what are some of we those launch into that strategies? <laughs> okay. So the very, let's, the let's. very first thing, the very first thing I recommended that people practice <laughs> is to just slow down, right? Move slowly, move slowly. Mm. When you pick up your baby, when you lay your baby down, even if you're not carrying your baby, if you're in the same room together, move slowly, because just by moving slowly, you can introduce a sense of peacefulness you know if you need to you know mm -hmm. approach your toddler because you need to set a limit unless the roof is collapsing there's no reason to rush quickly and just by approaching mm -hmm. slowly and hopefully calmly you can begin to sort of lower the emotional temperature perhaps not always um but slowing down just i think it affects the overall mood, you know? And for a young baby, uh, for whom so much of their sense of well-being comes through their body, how are they touched? How are they picked up? Do they feel secure in these arms or do they feel insecure? Like, oh dear, you know, you're gonna let my head drop backwards or something. Um, just by moving slowly, we can um, help the baby feel secure and the toddler uh, just sort of maintain their equilibrium a little bit more easily. So slowing mm -hmm. down, you know, I always think of when I would go to a yoga class and the teacher didn't rush around. If the teacher moved at all, it was very slowly and it just affected the whole mood of the room in a beautiful way. So that's the first thing is to practice that and really nothing else. Yeah. Until it's one of the things that I just thought of now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this one thing I just thought of now, which is occurring to me, is this idea of mirror neurons. Because when, you, so we have these neurons in our brains called mirror neurons, and it allows us to kind of perceive um, affect in another person and feel it ourselves. It's really kind of like the basis of empathy. And when you are interacting with your baby and you are coming it towards them or touching them or engaging with them from a place of high affect, intense mm -hmm. affect, you know, whether it's they're crying and you're, oh, panicking to pick them up and oh, shush, yeah. shush, 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 it's okay. Yeah. Um, that affect that we're re reflecting back to them, their brains, which have probably significantly more mirror neurons than ours because they haven't pruned them all away yet, mm -hmm. um, that they, they're flooded with that and their mirror neurons are saying panic, panic, panic. Yeah. And it's actually dysregulating them for us to be dysregulated. And so when we slow down, we're actually practicing our own regulation. So when we move slowly with our child, we are kind of, our brains are communicating really to that this is a safe and slow pace. And yeah. so it does create an actual like contagious energy. Yeah. So it's just an interesting, like, sort of neurocognitive mm -hmm. understanding of this idea. Yeah, absolutely. 
And if we are triggered, as many new parents are with their, when their babies cry, I think to, to consciously practice pausing, mm-hmm. you know, if we feel this sort of urge to rush towards toward the <laughs> crying baby to sort of, no, I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to count in my mind, not out loud, but I'm going to count to five or 10 to slow myself down. And I'm going to approach as slowly as I can, because, you know, if the baby sees us approaching slowly and calmly, this can help the baby start to calm before we've even touched the baby. So it Mm -hmm. has a lot of, um, I think, positive benefits. But to just to practice this and nothing else, because I think the idea uh, of, of Rye and, you know, some people uh, they can practice certain of the ideas or principles, and they all are kind of a good fit. And for other people, maybe sort of temperamentally mm-hmm. or for whatever reason, certain things, certain aspects aren't a good fit, and that's okay. But in the process of practicing, if we're trying to establish new habits, I think it's a really good idea to just practice one thing at a time, and maybe not all day mm-hmm. long, to not think, about, oh, I'm going to practice slowing down all day today. No, let me... I'm going to practice during, you know, lunch or during a diaper change and see if I can really remember to Mm -hmm. um, focus on this and then kind of add to it until it feels comfortable until you've internalized it and it's just habit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think nice cues for reminding ourselves to slow down would be those caregiving routines, right? You're doing them anyway. And so it's kind of a reminder. If you can pair that with this idea, this intention of slowing down, I'm going to slow down at the diaper changes today, or Mm -hmm. I'm going to slow down when we do bath time today. And so there's this, you're pairing this, this intention with an actual practice of like a task And the beautiful thing is that when you sort of, when you're slowing down in the caregiving moments, you're really connecting, you're really filling up in those caregiving moments, then you can not necessarily have that need to be constantly doing fill up time in all the other moments because Mm -hmm. your child is authentically filled with that sense of connection. And then they can go off and play, which is like a major concept in Rye. Yeah. Right. You're, you're, refueling, you know, and then they're more likely to be able to spend some time happily playing on their own versus if they've never really gotten sort of that slow, nurturing, full attention, then they're always going to be left wanting, you know, and, and, you know, the other, there are lots of Mm -hmm. sort of side benefits that come with slowing down. Another one is that we notice, we observe things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see if we're just in this sort of mode of, you know, if the diaper change is all about changing the diaper rather than let's slow this Mm -hmm. whole thing down and enjoy being together. um, Just by slowing down, we're going to notice something about the baby. Maybe we're going to notice, you know, where the baby's attention is and there could be a real back and Mm -hmm. forth. This is something we're doing together kind of thing that is very different than if we're moving quickly. To not just be slowing down, but to be moving for the sake of slowing down, but to be moving at the child's pace. So I need to move more slowly with the young baby than I do with a two-year-old, but I'm still going to move 
at the mm-hmm. two-year-old's pace, I'm not going to, which this is what often happens, the child starts to walk and suddenly everybody expects him to be able to, you know, walk quickly to keep up with adults, you know, <laughs> but to, to move at the toddler's pace because when we're sort of, if they're trying to hurry along to keep up with us, that's very often when they become irritable. And it's just because they can't keep up with what's happening. Yeah. So a lot of uh, a lot of upsets could be avoided if we remembered to move the child's pace. Yeah, it's so funny because actually, I feel like one of the most common like parenting struggles I hear about is like getting our kids out the door in the morning to get to school, right? That's when so much, and I have it too, like when I have a three-year-old and a one and a half-year-old and when we are trying to get out the door, it's always when the meltdowns happen. It's always when the, you know, they're taking their shoes, they're throwing them and they're running away. And that's not typically like the way that they act. My kids are generally pretty, you know, cooperative and patient. And I've, put a lot of thought into why this keeps happening. And I, and the pattern I always seem to know is when I'm in a rush, they get really dysregulated. And do we have to get them out the door sometimes? Yeah, we do. And are we sometimes in a rush? More often than not. But (laughs) I think that when we recognize it's not that our kids are being, you know, difficult because they know it's time to get out the door it's really that they're responding to our our sense of rushing and urgency yeah. that's actually making them anxious and that anxiety is dysregulating for them. So in any possible way that we can slow down the process of that transition out the, out the door in the morning, um, one, slowing down, but two, even if we can't slow the clock down, to slow our bodies down mm-hmm. and, our, and our sort of our pace and our energy. You may still have three minutes. <laughs> to get the kids in the car. But if you use that three minutes in a very harried pace, it's going to ratchet up the, the, the distress. But if you take those three minutes and you speak softly and slowly and you move your body slowly, you may find that you can get them out of the house in a more calm mm-hmm. way. You're still using that three minutes. like You're still watching the clock. But if you can regulate and move slowly, it can change the tone and then your kids can follow your pace. Yeah. And actually moving slowly may take less time because then you don't, if you're hurrying mm-hmm. them and then you have to stop to comfort somebody who's gotten upset just because they're being hurried, <laughs> it can actually take less time to move slowly because then everybody can get out the door peacefully and happily, you know, instead of falling apart. Right. You can do it all in one push, go. Push, push. Yeah. Yeah. It's very countercultural to yeah. move slowly, but I think it's a good thing. So that would be, that's always the yes. first thing that I suggest people practice. And then the second one is to practice, mm-hmm. practice telling the child what you're going to do before you do it. You know, so to the baby, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to lay you yeah. down. Let's open your diaper, uh, you know, to the toddler. I'm going to go in the other room. I'll be back in a minute. Um, we all want to know about, we all want to be told about things that are important to us. And for a baby, for a toddler, for a young child, what's more important than where's my mom or my dad going? You know, oh, they're moving away from me. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to know, you know, the child, we can reach a certain point and understand, okay, the toddler doesn't 
I don't, I no longer need to tell her when I'm only going out of the room for a second, she can see where I'm going. Right. But until that point, it's important to mm-hmm. tell her. I remember in my class uh, several years ago, my parent toddler class, all of a sudden, in the beginning of class, all of a sudden, this mom just popped up and walked out the door. And the children had already been in the middle of the room playing. And um, it, just, it was just very sudden for all of us. And uh, her, mm-hmm. her daughter was in the middle of the room. She stopped playing. She, she saw her mother walk out the door. She immediately started to cry and moved towards the door. And her mom came back in. It, it, it was very quickly. Maybe it wasn't even 10 seconds. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the mother said, oh, I didn't want to interrupt her playing. And I was, I just wanted to leave my cell phone out there. I realized I had it in my pocket, but then what she learned was, well, her, she knew she, what she was doing, that she was going to be right back, but her, her child didn't have any idea and her child, you know, therefore fell mm-hmm. apart, got really upset. So we, when we get into this habit when a child, you know, baby or young toddler, if somebody hasn't been practicing this yet, just start to practice it. And then you learn, you know, when you don't have to interrupt them to tell them, you know, when they're old enough, etc. Right. But um, it's a good thing to practice. Yeah. I think yeah. that ties directly into attachment theory yes, because it it's this idea that that baby is biologically hardwired to be monitoring either consciously or unconsciously the presence of her parent in that room. Like even though she may be playing consciously, there's a part of her brain that's tracking her mom and making sure that mom is near and by enough that I'm safe. And so when mom gets up to leave and doesn't reassure that child that she's going to be back, that child no longer is able to play but has to go into survival mode because she's immediately thrown into fight or flight. And so if, you know, you can, and maybe you could sneak away and your child might not see you sneak away. And so they can keep playing. But if your child stops and looks for you to refuel and you're not there, they'll then immediately go into fight or flight mode at that point. And that's really scary for a kid. And I say that not to, you know, freak out or shame any parent who's slipped away because we've all done it. But, but knowing kind of the brain science behind it, like your child keeps tabs on your presence Mm -hmm. and they do that for survival. And so just something as simple as saying, I'll be back. And then going and coming back is very reassuring for a child, but it's also helping them develop that sense of secure attachment to you. My, my caregiver leaves and comes back. And the more they leave and come back, the more I can be apart from them because I know they always come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then when they're in the habit, you know, that you've gotten into the habit of always telling them, then the child can fully relax because they know they're always going to be told, you know, the parents always going to tell them if they're leaving or whatever they're doing, you know, they don't have, they can sort of fully immerse themselves in their play without having to look up and keep tabs on the parent in case, Oh, she's up. She's going to escape out the room, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and Mm -hmm. this too, I think helps to develop a sense of trust. It also helps a child develop their sense of self because when a parent demonstrates to a child that I hold you in mind, 
I think about your experience and your perspective. So when I'm leaving a room, it's not just me leaving a room. I recognize that I'm leaving you and that you may have a feeling or a thought about that. And so when I reflect back to you that I'm thinking about your experience, the child is then learning, I have a unique experience. I have a sense of self. And like that actually ends up ultimately over time becoming internalized by the child that like people think about my experience, my experience matters. I can start paying attention to my experience yeah. It's very formative. Yeah. And so we're we're telling we're giving them this information because it's important to them. It's meaningful to them. We're not giving them the information with the intention that uh well if I tell you you'll be happy about it. You know, if I tell you that I'm leaving mm-hmm. and you can expect it, then you won't get a- upset. That the child could very well get upset right. that I'm going out of the room. That doesn't mean that I should stay. I have something I need to do in the other room. Mm-hmm. And the child can protest. And I can acknowledge it. I know you're really upset. You want me to stay here. But I need to go in the room for a few minutes and I will be back. I go and I come back, just like you were talking about, Sarah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's important, yeah. too. That's important, too. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to absolutely because that teaches the protest from the real, true, you know, stressed uh, separation, anxiety, mm-hmm. crying. Because a, a lot of toddlers, in particular, will protest that kind of thing. But you know, sometimes there's something that we have to do. That's okay. And it teaches a kid that, like, I think, you know, a lot of times this is the reason why parents sneak out of rooms. You know, they don't do it to mess with their kid. They do it because they're trying Aww. to protect their child from having, getting upset, right? It's, it's, it's always the best of intentions. Yep. Um, but the problem with that is it's this story, why are we afraid for our children to be upset? What's bad about that? And if we repeatedly try to avoid situations where a child might authentically have feelings, negative feelings about it, we kind of prevent our child from being able to experience and practice feeling and tolerating these uncomfortable feelings in a relatively safe way. Yeah. You know, you're you know that you're going to the bathroom and you're going to come right back and if they get upset, they can maybe handle that 5 minutes of upset and then receive you on your return when you get back and you guys can repair that. Yeah. That's a really powerful opportunity for a kid to experience distress, to be upset. And then learn, not only is it okay for me to be upset, nothing bad ends up happening. And also mom can really tolerate, or dad or whomever, can really tolerate and accept my negative feelings just as much as my positive feelings. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for the child to have the experience of, you know, not just sort of the happy, lighthearted emotions, but you know, mm-hmm. sadness, frustration, conflict, some kind of conflict, uh, not mm-hmm. that that's an emotion, um, with, with the parent to practice, a sort of have a wide repertoire, right? Mm-hmm. To not, not try to avoid those. And, and if we find ourselves resisting, you know, sometimes parents will say, well, you know, I thought about setting a limit, but then I anticipated the upset that would happen. So I just find myself trying to avoid it somehow, trying to back off from it. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing to pay attention to, I think, you know. 
So, yeah. yeah so, and all of this, I, I use the word practice a lot because it is all about practicing, you know? Um, and it's not about, you know, doing things perfectly or whatever. This is, you know, we're in relationship with another person. It's messy sometimes. And it's through the messes, I think, that actually we learn a lot. So to be willing to practice, get up the next day and practice. So the slowing down and that, oh, and so then tell the child what you're going to do before you do it. But then the third one, and this is the one that people sometimes forget, is after you've told the baby, the toddler, what you're going to do, then pause. At Rye, we call it tarry time. So pause or wait for a few moments for the child to process what we've said, because especially a baby or a young toddler, they're just acquiring language and it takes them longer to process verbal communication than it. I mean, for us, it's immediate. Mm -hmm. So if I said, you know, to a baby, I'm going in the other room, I'll be right back. And I immediately walked out of the room, the baby would get upset because it would be the equivalent of me really not having told her because she hasn't processed it yet. So we have to, uh, Mm -hmm. try to remember that as well. Slow everything down. Yeah. Yeah. And I can hear people listening to this right now being like, a baby can't understand my words. (laughs) How will that do anything? And I, I love that question. They do, because they, I, do. they do understand. I they definitely have language. Their receptive mm-hmm. language. I mean, that's how they learn language by being spoken to, right? So if we if we use simple yes. language, just a few words, and we use the same kind of words every time for routine messages like "I'm going in the other room," "I'm be right back," "I'm going to pick you up," "I'm going to the wipe is very cold," "Can you lift your bottom for me?" You know, I mean, how many different ways can we say those things, right? Very mm-hmm. quickly, mm-hmm. they understand. If I say to a young baby, can you lift your bottom yeah. for me? And that's followed by my lifting their bottom. I mean, I've seen a five-week-old baby try to lift his bottom. He already knew what those words mm-hmm. meant because they were always followed by that gesture. So they have receptive language long right. before they utter their first words. And that's how they learn to, that's how they learn language. Yeah. And even beyond receptive language, which I do believe they are picking up on much earlier than we give them credit for, but tone of voice. And like you were describing sequence, right? If mom utters these sounds and every time these particular set of sounds are uttered, I'm lifted into the air, right? She says these sounds, she gets really close and down on my level. She says these sounds and then I get picked up they are going to start attributing that collection of sounds to this event, even if they don't know what that collection of sounds means from a you know, verbal language level. But eventually those sounds will become words to them. So it's like you might as well start from the very beginning because our children are, the youngest babies are able to recognize patterns and sequences of sounds and, and actions. So don't be confused that your nonverbal infant who cannot respond back to you and say, okay, pick me up. I'm ready. You know, but right. they can absolutely understand aspects of it. Certainly upon repetition. Absolutely. 
another uh, another interesting thing about language is uh, to think of speaking in statements, right? So, uh, young to a young baby, I'm going to pick you up. I'm saying that as a statement. If I say, I'm going to pick you up, okay, with my, huh? that little, hmm, <laughs> at the mm -hmm. end of it, uh, that creates, a, I'm not saying all the time, a lot of us, I said that, I had to sort of break that habit of saying, okay, um, but it's a good one to break because yeah, that, that introduces sort of a sense of, it's not as sure, saying, okay, and so it can to the receiver, to the recipient of those words, the child, um, it can cause a little of, uh, I'm trying to think of a word for it. It's less than secure, is what I'm saying. When the right, it's almost like a little pressing, I'm going to pick you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so just the inflect, I mean, it's well-researched, just that little inflection on the end, making it into a question. The baby can't answer and say, no, it's not okay for you to pick me up. So it's really not a question. It's kind of a habit that some of us get into, maybe to be kind or soften a message or whatever. But it's actually very helpful to a baby, to a toddler, to speak in the affirmative in statements in iMessages, right? Uh, so something yeah, to think about. Absolutely. Something to think about. And don't, you know, for anybody listening, if, if you say, oh, I say, I do that all the time. It's nothing to be concerned about. It's just something to, I think, just bring our consciousness to it. And I think it's a good thing to model for children of speaking mm -hmm. our minds and, and, and feeling confident to say, you know, this is what I'd like to happen. Yeah. I have like a little pet peeve with you're making me think of a totally separate pet peeve I have with my daycare always teaches my their the my kids in the class to say no thank you when they're being when they don't like something and I get it cuz it's like oh it's polite it's but I actually think there's no information in that like what is the no I want when someone pushes me I want to be able to say no I don't want you to push me no push yeah not no thank you which I think is similar to what you're talking about this I'm going to pick you up, okay? And what you're, that little okay turns the power dynamic around onto the child. Now the child's making the decision. And children don't actually feel very secure and comfortable when there's a question of who's in, in charge. They really yeah. feel much more comfortable when they know that we are confidently in charge. Not in yeah. like a dogmatic and like authoritarian way of like, mm -hmm. I'm big, you're small, but just, I've got you. I'm in charge here. And so when we say, I'm going to pick you up now versus I'm going to pick you up now, okay? And I also do that all the time. I have to work on it. But It sounds tentative. It, it, it also, it's like you're basically telling them that they need to make the decision. Mm. And they, one, know they're not in the position to make that decision and it's confusing. But then as these kids get older, these dynamics, it's like if you have these little very mildly, mildly problematic exchanges when you're really, really young. As the baby gets older, as a child, as the relationship scales, so to speak, those cracks become more pro mm -hmm. pronounced and it's harder kind of to undo them. And so then it becomes, are you, you know, are you, can you, you know, oh, I'm trying to think of an example, like keep your food on your plate, okay? 
And now the food's going on the floor. And like they've, or it's time for bed, okay? And now it's like, I'm got a bedtime struggle on my hand. Like, I think if we, even as very small infants, we set the stage of like the way that we confidently communicate, communicates, I've got this, I'm in charge in a very warm and loving way, but still unquestionably so. Mm-hmm. Then as they get older, they really trust our, our no's and they trust our yeses and mm-hmm. they trust our preparation. Like you were saying, like, I'm going to do this now because it always fo- is followed by the, the follow through. And so I think when you have older children, they're more, they're more, they feel more grounded in your sturdiness. And so there's less power struggles behaviorally. There still will be, of course, because they're practicing their power as they get older but that's healthy and normal versus it coming from a place of anxiety. Who's really in charge here? I have to check. Right. Maybe if I keep negotiating. You know, I think mm-hmm. the, the more the child senses that the parent is resolute, like there's no point in my trying to negotiate because I can tell my parent is very firm. She sp- speaks confidently. He speaks confidently. There, there's just no point in my continuing to kind of, you know, they, they, they can relax. They might be unhappy about the limit. They can feel unhappy about it, but they can relax. They can feel secure because they know Mm -hmm. that the parent is in charge in a kind and friendly way, hopefully, (laughs) right? It's not about being authoritarian. It's about being authoritative, being confident enough to be authoritative. And and I I think when we really sort of can hold that and own that, that we can absolutely do it in a friendly, kind way. If the child doesn't feel diminished or you know overpowered or anything like that, and it really helps them to feel secure. You know, I can be the child; mm-hmm. my parent yeah. is in charge. It's a good thing. Yeah, they can really play. Yeah, I could talk to you about this literally all day long. <laughs> But I think I think we should plan on having more of these in the future and then <laughs> revisit some of this. But I I think that this is so helpful. Just this idea of like three very straightforward strategies that you don't need to buy a single thing for, right? You don't need any tools or anything at all and no gadgets. Slow down, prepare your child in advance, and pause. Like how powerful to know that those three very, very accessible and simple things can make such a massive difference in your relationship with your kid from birth, but at any point too. Yeah. 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 And if, you know, and if you're somebody who moves quickly, or I mean, I don't like anybody to think, oh no, I've been doing just the opposite. Well, you know, you can start practicing whenever you start. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I also love this idea of it being a practice, like like mindfulness or meditation. Yeah. Parenthood is a practice. Mm-hmm. Respectful, attuned parenting is a practice. Slow parenting, it's a practice. There's no end goal. You haven't reached it and then you're done. It's like it's an ongoing way of kind of coming back to it over and over and over and trying again and again. And that's a really good thing to model for children, too. It's about the process. Some days we do well, and mm. other days maybe not so well. So we, you know, get up the next day and we try again. We repair our ruptures, you know. We, uh, I, th- mm. I th- 
I think that's all really important. It's not anything to try to perfect or do right or, you know. Yeah. I think that just ends up turning into parenting guilt, which is yeah. an Achilles heel of parenting. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your wisdom with us. Oh, um, if people pleasure. are interested in kind of hearing, yeah, if people are interested in hearing more about the work you do, how can they find you? They can find me on my website, which is DebraCarlisleSolomon.com. They can join my list either on my website or if if they go to DebraCarlisleSolomon.com forward slash overwhelm, um, then they can be added to my list and um, they'll get a, a PDF and it's really about setting limits just very short and to the point, (laughs) concise uh, things to sort of pay attention to when we're practicing setting limits. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that, and I'll put all that in the show notes too. um, So people can reference that later, but um, I feel like your PDF would be a great way to implement a lot of the sort of process that we're talking about today in actual practice. So that might be a really helpful resource. So people can check that out. I would recommend it. Good, good. This has been fun. Thank you for inviting. So fun. Thank you for coming. I love reconnecting with you. And um, we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Isn't Deborah great? I just love how she gives these concrete steps that parents can take and really apply these theories and principles into actual reality. And I really want to reiterate one of the things she said in our conversation, because I think it's a really important piece of information, which is that this is this act of parenting is a practice. It's not really an end goal. There is no end to parenting. It's an ongoing day in, day out way of being. And I love the idea that you really don't necessarily need to do more, just be more intentional about what you already are doing. Don't forget to get Deborah's um, PDF of the seven simple steps to calm and cooperation, because this will help sort of use what we learned today to apply some of these principles into action when setting limits for toddlers. It's a great resource. Um, And if you want to dig a little deeper into this concept, you can also go to drsarahbren.com where you'll find my free parenting guide, Parent Smarter, Not Harder, um, where I talk a lot about ways to think about the neuroscience behind some of this stuff and guide you in integrating some of these skills of being present and being connected and being regulated with our kids um, into, into action. So this week, I really want you to give these techniques that we talked about today a try and see if they work well for you. You know, if the, if these rye concepts are brand new to you, maybe just start by telling your child what you're going to do before you do it. And if this is something you've been practicing for a long time and you're more of a seasoned pro, then, then really try to think about waiting a beat before you follow through on your actions so that your child really has that ample time to process and begin to understand what it is you're telling them is about to happen. And afterwards, head over to Instagram and comment on the podcast post or DM me how it felt or any questions that you might have. 
and let me know what you think of this episode and if there are other topics that you want me to cover on Securely Attached. Don't forget to like and rate the podcast and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next week, don't be a stranger. 